continue in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're just getting started, so it's a great time to, uh, to be here. And uh, we're looking at, I think this is my favorite passage in the New Testament. Uh, it is just so, so good. Uh, we are trying to figure out what does Jesus mean when he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean? That is the content of his uh, sermon uh, or his sermons. Uh, that's previously in Mark chapter 1. That is the content. He says that repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he, what does he mean? Um, he has returned to Capernaum, which is a town that is uh, a very religious town. And there are a lot of hard-hearted people there. Capernaum is a rough experience for Jesus, um, and we will learn as uh, as Mark unfolds uh, some of the the plots that are underway against Jesus. So, as Brandon read, um, Jesus is teaching, and the room is packed, and uh, a man who cannot walk, has never walked in his life, has some great friends. And they determine to get on top of the roof, and they uh, start dismantling the roof, and they lower this man down, right? And I imagine, doesn't text doesn't say, but I imagine this is happening right in front of Jesus. Uh, and uh, I always imagine that there's, you know, bits of the bits of the roof, or, or you know, particles are falling on people's heads. And uh, he is being lowered down, uh, probably on the, the pallet that he was carried around on. He couldn't walk, and he needed everyone to help him in some way, his friends to help him get anywhere. And I'm thinking that same platform is lowered down with four ropes, and here he is. Uh, the text doesn't say this, but I wonder if at some point they just stop him, and he's just suspended right there. doesn't say that, but I just wonder if that happens. Some real friends um, and the, the Gospel of Mark here in verse 5 records that Jesus sees their faith. And then he declares out of the blue, he just states it. Uh, he just says, uh, my son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, and what we're going to learn in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is an instigator. Uh, he's the one who creates crisis, and that might we might think of Jesus meek and mild and just a super nice person who doesn't cause any waves. Uh, that's not true. And he has in the, in the uh, probably in the front rows there, he has these uh, very religious folk called the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, I have a couple of observations about the text uh, and breaking in my tradition of finding three points, I only have two points today, so I know that will throw many of you off. But uh, I'd like to look at Jesus as the one who reveals the true human condition. And then I'd like to look at Jesus astounds the pious and the religious. Uh, sometimes when you're looking at your Bible passage, there's a lot of little details, and you can get caught up in those details. Is the story about their? Is the story about the friends? Right? Uh, is the story about 
uh, the man's reaction, right? Um, what is the story about? And so that's my attempt to say, I think the story is about uh, Jesus' authority uh, to speak to the true human condition, and it's about his developing conflict with legalism and uh, who can speak for God and who has the authority to speak for God. I think that's kind of what the passage is all about. So uh, figuring out the, tr- the human condition, uh, uh, this is a person who is suffering. Uh, they have never walked. Um, they have never uh, been able to get something for themselves. They've always had someone help them. And uh, this person is revealing to us something of the human condition. There's many able-bodied people in the room, but Jesus addresses the one who can't walk and has never walked. Maybe he's shuffled himself across the floor, possible. Um, But when it comes to our condition in this world, we're actually pretty evasive to that question. Particularly if we are well-accomplished, well-educated, we've been able to determine a goal in life and to meet that goal. So when you think about your condition in this world, well, you actually can get a lot of things done and you can accomplish a lot. So we don't walk around necessarily thinking that we have some trouble in us, particularly if we're well accomplished. Uh, but a person like this, it's hard, it's, it is a regular thing for them to ask for help, right? That's just how it happens. But for the rest of us, it's not a regular thing for us to ask for help. Uh, at your work, that might be a sign of weakness. You can't do your job. What would your coworkers think if you need some help, right? So even just the idea of asking for help is, you know, we don't do that. <clears throat> now, little children uh, tend to not have a problem asking for help. They know they can't do certain things. Um, and so part of this question about the human condition is awareness, Um so the town of Capernaum doesn't have any problems with their human condition. <laughs> the, the, the town of Capernaum is uh, well-adjusted in their opinions and ideas, uh, and they will tell Jesus about what they think of him. <clears throat> it's actually an account in Luke 4 of Jesus preaches, <laughs> preaches in a synagogue in Luke 4. It's recorded there, and uh, they are so offended by what he says that they, they try to usher him off a cliff. So they don't have any problem with their, uh, with their human condition. Um, and there, there's something else that helps us in, uh, in, in being evasive to this, is that is if you have a religious impulse. If, for instance, if you're a religious person and you sort of pride yourself in adhering to rules, walking the straight and narrow, um, your true condition before a holy God is somewhat opaque. It's not real clear to you. Um, If you live by a lot of oughts and shoulds and feel like you fulfill a lot of those oughts and shoulds, uh, you're doing pretty good in life, right? You have a, a moral code and you have a sense that you're achieving it. 
Um, religion has a strong tendency, uh, particularly people who think that they're actually doing their religion, uh, has a strong tendency to make us feel righteous. Um, now, we're not actually righteous, but we feel righteous, okay? Um, and then this righteous feeling morphs into a condemnation of others, and sometimes it's kind of on a low simmer, but we do spend our time, maybe we don't quite actually fold our arms, but we have this sense of, of moral superiority, and uh, there's an aloofness to people who are self-righteous. Now, usually you feel it before you even know what's going on, right? And so uh, every once in a while, I, I do not want to communicate that in the pulpit here, and every once in a while I'll ask our elders, I'll ask others of you, hey, what was the tone like? Did I come across as a smart aleck? Did I come across as a know-it-all? Did I come across in any way, a, a, was there a spirit of condemnation about me? And it wouldn't honestly surprise me <laughs> if that was true, because I'm just as evasive about my need as anyone else. <laughs> um, and people who tend to get into this business behind the pulpit uh, can, at times, be the most blind to their own issues. Um, so um, the story is really about some people who are for this guy, and then there are some people there who are against this guy because this guy represents well, what Jesus said about him and how Jesus heals him. And this just rocks their whole world. And they are so caught up in, uh, in control that they now will begin to plot against Jesus. The scribes are mentioned here. Uh, a scribe, when you hear the word scribe, you should just think of lawyer. Uh, religiously lawyer people, meaning that they um, they meticulously look at the law and figure out how it should apply to people. So, if, for instance, someone they would they would adjudicate a divorce, for instance, they were very meticulous about the application of the law, and uh, so the scribes, the law lawyers, are in the front rows. And Jesus has just said something outrageous. <clears throat> he has just stepped into the role of God and said, I can tell you what God thinks of you. God thinks that you, your sins are no longer held to your account. You're forgiven. And I would say that that is the true human condition, biblically speaking, that we live before a holy God, we cannot excuse ourselves, and there's a sort of a somewhat, a, there is an awareness of this in every person. Um, I am aware of a divine uh, message to my conscience, right? I'm aware of it. And what we do is we suppress that. I'm borrowing from Romans chapter 1. We suppress this knowledge, but there's sufficient. Notice how I'm saying it. There is sufficient knowledge of God and God's will revealed to us. And what that does is that reveals to us that we have real guilt before a holy God. And this guilt can't go away just because you're religious or irreligious, uh, it, it can't go away. It doesn't matter if you turn 
uh, to the bottle, turn to some pleasure, turn to some achievement. It, it, this sense that something's not right or your, your sense of fear, um, you, can't, you can't put it away. Um, now, the only one who can actually declare that you're forgiven would be the person who got offended, right? So if uh, someone offended you, 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 couldn't have a, you couldn't have a third person say, oh, by the way, I forgive you. <laughs> well, you didn't do anything wrong. So it has to be given by the person who was offended. That's right. So what Jesus does is he is speaking on behalf of the offended party. And, uh, and this is what makes Jesus so unique. Um, now, some of you know that my personal story is that I come out of uh, Southern California, kind of a Southern California pagan guy, and a little, I was kind of into like what I'd call designer religion. So it's, it's kind of cool because you can pick and choose things, go to the, uh, you know, the metaphysical section in the bookstore when there were bookstores, and you pick out some cool-looking you know, teacher about the soul or meditation or whatever, and we call this New Age. And so you bring this book home and, uh, and uh, pick out what you like and discard what you don't like, right? Uh, and in a lot of these, a lot of these books, uh, there are quotations about Jesus. Uh, you got to have Jesus in in your in your New Age book. I mean, he's got to be there, right? And uh, usually, they are misquoting him. Uh, but if you don't know if you don't know the Bible, you don't know he's being misquoted. And when I encountered the the Jesus of Scripture. The first thing that happened was I realized that he was not in the league of all these other religious teachers. Like he he openly said, "I'm not in that club. <laughs> That's not my club." <clears throat> and this kind of passage, Mark two, would be a great passage to have sort of in your back pocket to to when you are encountering someone who doesn't believe and doesn't know what we call the gospel. Remember, they probably have not encountered Jesus in the scriptures. Okay, so this would be a beautiful passage to just introduce someone to. Well, this is kind of what's, what it was like to to be with Jesus. This, this is the kind of thing he did. Now, I say this to say that it's pretty clear in this passage that Jesus is authorized to forgive sins. He must be by deduction. We can learn this from other places in the Bible, but he must be, if he's saying that you're forgiven, he must be God incarnate in order to do that. Okay, so it's pretty clear, but I want to apply this passage uh, to us by giving you some statistics about evangelicals. Ligonier Ministries um, out of Florida uh, was affiliated with uh, R.C. Sproul. Um, they do a survey of Americans and then of evangelicals every two years. You can find this online. And um, the 2020 Ligonier Ministry survey of uh, several thousand evangelicals 
one-third of evangelicals, now this means one-third of people likely attending church, likely uh, you know, having a high regard for this, one-third of evangelicals believe that Jesus was only a great teacher. Now this passage, of course, is doing much more than that, isn't it? Um, that means that these people who are attending evangelical churches don't regard Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Another observation from the Ligonier study is that in recent decades, it has been popular to claim that adherents of various religions all worship the same God, even if that worship is not offered through Jesus Christ. And uh, this 2020 survey revealed that almost half of professing evangelicals affirm some notion of religious pluralism. That means you don't have to have Jesus as your mediator. You don't even have to be worshiping Jesus. or Jesus doesn't have to be in the equation. And so essentially, a sincere person who is just worshiping something else, some other teachings, uh, is worshiping the true God. Does that make sense? And almost half of all evangelicals then don't have an understanding of sin. So if you can take that view that, well, any old effort at worship is okay, then you don't understand Jesus, nor do you understand what sin is. You don't need anyone to stand in the gap. Now here's an account where Jesus says he is everything. He is the one between God and man and what he says is true. And I say that to you to ask you, do you understand your need for a savior? You might find that to be odd, a, a church that clearly affirms Jesus as our savior. Are you finding yourself landing right here in Mark 2 that only through Jesus can come the forgiveness of sins. For what is man's true condition? The Bible presents man as before a holy God, though made wonderfully in God's image. The Bible presents man as repressing the truth through unrighteous thoughts and deeds. The Bible presents that God who is knowable and known, people turn away from that knowledge and repress that knowledge with unrighteous thoughts and deeds. The true human condition requires someone to stand in the gap if anyone will be saved. Now that is the Bible's message. And that's the Bible's story. The Bible story is essentially that God was faithful, not only to, to Israel, but to the world, his promise 
of redemption. That's the great story of the Bible. And so, let's move to our second idea. Jesus astounds the pious and the religious. Well, whenever you, if you were around Jesus, he would know what you're thinking. Isn't that a little bit disturbing? So, these scribes who are sitting up front in the, in the house, they hear Jesus say, My son, your, your sins are forgiven. And they think to themselves, that can't be right. The only one who can forgive sins is God. And that's exactly what they think. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so, Jesus uh, does something quite fantastic. He combines what's easy with what's hard. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but it's pretty hard to have someone be healed on the spot. And so he ties the two together. You see, it's easy to just say words, right? But here's what happens. If Jesus says, be healed, you're going to find out in about 10 seconds whether or not those words are real, aren't you? So Jesus combines the hard and the easy. And right in front of all these hard-hearted Capernaums, but Capernaums, he, he heals this man. But the point of the healing is not that he just has that power. You doubt my authority, essentially is what he's saying. You doubt that I'm representing the gospel of God, that people can be forgiven. So when I say to this man, be healed, and when he walks out of here, know for certain that his sins have been forgiven. And so Jesus is the instigator, and apparently Jesus loves drama. And so, knowing, knowing that this would begin the process in the thinking of the scribes, that they would begin to hate him for this, knowing that this would begin the process of their plotting against him, Jesus sides with this crippled man and this man's true condition before a holy God and he heals the man knowing it will anger the religious professionals in the room. Aren't you, doesn't that make your heart warm toward Jesus? Jesus initiates a crisis through doing something good. <laughs> if you ever want to explore the religious world and how crazy it is, that will tell you much, much about the religious world. That religious people, strangely enough, can be opposed to what is good if for some reason their reputation is diminished. So, what's he doing? He's answering the question, who can speak for God? And he says, I can. That's why I'm here. And what is it that, what is it that Mark is revealing uh, throughout chapters 1 through 8? Who, who is here? If we were all disciples following Jesus we would be forced to answer that question. Who is among us? Who is here? Who can speak for God? 
Only God alone. And the second question is, who can presume upon judgment day? Do you see what Jesus is doing? See, all of us here believe, I would think, that there is a day of of justice coming, a day of judgment coming, right? Well, that sort of hangs over everyone's head. People don't, if they think about it for a long, long enough time, they feel a bit uncomfortable about it, not quite sure about it. Some people are pretty confident about it. Um, yeah, I've got enough good things to show God on that day. I'm not worried about it. Um, but what Jesus is doing here is he's presuming upon a day that you just don't presume upon. He's presuming upon judgment day. And, of course, in Israel they believe that yet your sins could be forgiven, but no one really knows for sure until you hear from God. Well, what's Jesus doing here? You're hearing from God. Well, when is judgment day supposed to happen? Well, that's future. What's happening here in this little little house in Capernaum? The future has arrived. The future certainty of what God will say on that day arrives. That's the gospel. If you believe the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, you should walk around with great confidence knowing that the day of judgment and what judgment day will say about you has already arrived. Your judgment day has already taken place on the cross. This is the stuff that fuels worship. In order, verse verse 10, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This isn't the only time I'm going to be doing this. (laughs) This is my status. You can expect this from me because my arrival is good news. This is the kingdom's arrival. When we say kingdom, what do we mean? Think of stage one and stage two. Stage one is the kingdom of grace, the forgiveness of sins. Stage two is the kingdom of glory, the new heaven and new earth. Real physical change to all that we experience. Stage one, the kingdom of grace. It's going around the world going over borders and under borders and all around the world, every nation, every tribe, this kingdom of grace is moving, and it's moving through, through words. I think it's fascinating also, a little side note here, when the, when the creation starts, God speaks. And when the recreation starts, when Jesus is now recreating, helping this man begin to walk again and speaking to this man's soul, recreating him with new life, it's words. Isn't that fascinating? And God is doing that even now around the world. Words. Words are coming out. Coming out of the preacher. Coming out of scripture. Coming out of, of a Christian sharing with, with someone who doesn't believe. Words are coming out. What's the power of words? Well, watch. Watch Jesus and the power of his words. And God is the one who can take the words and bring them to bear with real spiritual power. 
to make this event. Jesus rose from the dead, palpable to someone in living in our time, making it so real a person can't avoid this truth. It's so real I can't deny it. I can't be evasive. It's true. I live before a holy God. On the day of my conversion, I was just hearing a preacher talk. Well, I could get through that. Not so fast. We should have much more confidence when we're thinking about evangelism that the words we use, one sentence from Scripture, you have no idea how God could accompany that with real spiritual power. In order for you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Those are words of absolution, declared. Your sins are forgiven. And he wanted this man himself to even experience it, to know it. And he experienced it in his body. There's an interesting parallel, I think, with the Lord's Supper. See, you're hearing just words from me right now, right? Words. Eh, that's what preachers do, words. But you'll have an experience with your body right here when you take the bread and the cup. Signaling to you that the whole of you, the whole of you, God intends to redeem and to restore. And it's so vitally, vital, vitally important to you that you understand this, that even beyond the words of the preacher, you now can hold the elements of your salvation in your hands. That's God's good grace to you. So now let's apply this, and we'll wrap this up, an application by numbers. Now, I'm not going to quote Ligonier uh, surveys now, but I want to wrap this up in terms of, of applying this to you. What percent of you today understand your true condition before a holy God? What percent of you? Do you see yourself as needy? Do you imagine yourself as well accomplished uh, and just need a few inspirational ideas on a Sunday? Or do you see yourself as desperate, like this man, for someone else to help you? Here's another question. What percent of you understand that forgiveness in Jesus is understanding the gospel? Or are you still laboring under demands and commands? Or I got to get betters. Or I'm trying. Do you hear Jesus proclaim to you that your sins are forgiven? Now leap for joy. Do you hear that? Is there some message inside your mind? Well, that's true, but, uh, well, I sort of kind of, well, that's sort of, and you... You sort of discount it in your mind. Here's another question. What percent of us need to begin the work of connecting this forgiveness to all of your life? This means you won't be so touchy. This means you won't be so defensive. This means you'll, the opinion of other people won't, it will never destroy you. You've survived judgment day. <laughs> I mean, Think about it. 
the one who could critique you to the depths of your being, and you wouldn't survive that critique, you survived it through Jesus. So receive feedback at work, receive you know, thought from your wife, or it's not going to destroy you. But what percent of us need to begin to connect this forgiveness to all of our life? And then watch how this new freedom would begin to work out with some new joy. You are all on pallets, and may you be lowered down to encounter Jesus. Like Lincoln, who made the Emancipation Proclamation after a tragic and terrible war, you are now no longer what others say you are, nor are you even what you say you are. Do you hear the Emancipation Proclamation of Jesus toward you? Faith in Jesus now, not later, not someday, but faith in Jesus now makes you one of his beloved. He wants your full wholeness. He wants you to walk. Right now, faith in Christ has brought the age to come into your heart now. Do not fear judgment day. Do you hear the words of Jesus representing God's forgiveness to you? Do you hear him giving you ears to hear that? Pick up your pallet. Go home and walk in new life. Let's pray. Our Father, do we hear the words of Jesus that declare the forgiveness of sins and that the war between ourselves and you is over? The one who cried it is finished. Do we, do we hear him, O oh God? Father, thank you for his unique ability to create a planned conflict in order to redeem the weak, the humble, the desperate. Oh, Lord, may we be part of that crowd unashamedly and say, Lord, heal me fully and completely that I might live to you in new life. Lord, thank you for this power, the gospel's power to bring us hope, to bring us forgiveness. Thank you for the age that has come crashing into our hearts already. Thank you for the great cost that Jesus gave in order to bring this age. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.